it's a pleasure to welcome you to Swing Thoughts. You know, for two guys that said at Labor Day, like, well, I guess we're just going to start taking it easy and we won't record as much in the fall, the uh, Swing Thoughts Fall Series. I think we've done like three shows in ten days. But everyone, listen, calm down, everyone, because you're going to see there's a reason. Um, I'm golf spiritual leader. I, I Why? Because I say I am. Along with Coach Tim... Uh, we are uh, happy to uh, have you here, Timmy. Good to see you again. You look great. Good to see you, sir. Yeah, you're looking resplendent. In uh, you're, you're looking dark. Well, I turned, dude. I turned, my daughter's living with me. Uh, she's 25, and uh, she's cold all the time. And just like some old dad, I had to turn the furnace on a couple of days ago. It's just too cold in my room, Daddy. Uh, that's not that's not why we're here. We're here to uh, to talk golf, and uh, as always, brought to you by TaylorMade Golf, and of course, who is OscarBravo.com. Um, and why are we recording so much? Because uh, we had an opportunity to talk to a, uh, a guest we had on the show in May, and much like the old days of decade, um, if you were doing if you were taking a shot every time I mentioned Raymond Pryor. Or golf beneath the surface, or quoted something from his book as though I understood it, you would be hammered every show. Um, so, without further ado and delay, let's welcome back um, one of the most sought after names. I'm reading this from the book. One of the most sought after names in performance psychology. His clients include major champions, Olympic gold medalists, um, also, by the way, Grammy Award winners, actors, and performers. So his expertise uh, is ubiquitous, if I may say, in that it, it runs the gamut from whatever the performance arena is. Our guest, Dr. Raymond Pryor, would have something to say about it. Hello, Dr. Ray. Hey, guys. Great to be here with the uh, Sultans of Swing. <laughs> and uh, Howard, I was unaware that your daughter is... Um Oliver Twist wanting please, please sir, can I have some heat? <laughs> That's right. Papa, can I have some Well, she is Oliver Twist except she sounds like Cartman. When she talks yeah. to me she's like daddy. Daddy. Um yeah. we were just before we started recording I I I'd sent Ray a note Tim about what we talked about last week on the show which was performing in front of a lot of people. I did a gig recently in front of a thousand people and the stakes are very, you know, they're very specific reactions when you're doing stand-up. You know, Tim does a lot of speaking, and I've done some keynotes, but in those arenas, the reaction you're looking for isn't as as specific, for lack of a better word. I can I'll say it twice. So, Ray, and you were commenting on stand-up as, and you immediately went to something in golf that you and I have talked about, which is as analogous to what? Well, it's a very make-or-miss performance realm, the stand-up comedy, like putting, Putting is that went in or didn't, and in the area of the game where you score, which is trying to get the golf ball in the hole, and in comedy, you're trying to make people laugh, and they either do or they don't. Now, you could argue there are degrees of laughter, but the bottom line is you're trying to get people to laugh, and uh, that makes it a a very fine line. Yeah. You know, the actual margin for error is smaller in putting than it is other areas of the game in golf and what we deem deem acceptable because the ball has to go in the hole in order for you to finish and in stand-up comedy um like many other performance realms like you either got a laugh or you didn't or Mm -hmm. you got a some of a laugh and didn't and it's that is a ruthless performance realm there's a lot of risk in a make or miss uh margin for error for people for for 
for performers. And in my note to you, and I've talked about this with Tim, is I, I was backstage and when they said 60 seconds, Howard, and the lights go down, and you can hear the roar of the crowd. I sort of said to myself, like I was on the first tee of a tournament saying, okay, are you all right with whatever's about to happen? Like, are we really going to be okay? And then I took a couple deep breaths and I said, all right, you know, screw it. I'm just going to go take a hard swing at this and see what happens. And, and in that moment or two, as you walk out, you know, I think people can sense, you know, does this person look like they're in control or not? But I was in full, let me just put it this way. When a thousand people laugh at something you said, it's, it's a very bonerific experience. That's all I'm going to, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. yeah. That's it. it hits that emotional. Oh yeah. In a certain way. And that's, that's to our brain. That experience is the same as if you were on the first tee, felt some anxiety perhaps, or some nerves. And you went, you know what? No, I'm going to rip this thing at my target and I'm going to be willing to see where it goes rather than me needing to save myself from somewhere where it goes. And then you actually execute in a way that is intended. And of course, if the outcome matches, that's always a bonus. But even if it doesn't, there's something to be said about us when we stop it, when we step up to a performance realm that is important to us, win score counts, that we execute freely, there's a certain level of satisfaction with that, which the neurochemical combination for that is a lot of dopamine and a lot of adrenaline. And the combination thereof is, a, is the chemical formula for like us enjoying effort and making it feel good. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I said to Howard the next day after the show, I was inquiring, oh, how did it go and all this? And I'll have you know, uh, Dr. Raymond, he said, a few birdies, a few, a few bogeys, but a solid 72. Yeah. <laughs> but right. what I was saying is that isn't it exciting? Isn't it exciting that you get to do something like that? And I have some similar things, but that's what makes it such an, an amazing experience is that it is risky. And if you look at what's exciting, it's like, well, this could go really well or it could go the other way. And to use that uh, phrase, uh, bonerific, that's. And by the way, that's feel free to use it. it. Feel free to use it in your everyday lives, but I see. Yeah, it's, that's, I, it's my that's actually the that's actually the technical term you'll read in the research. <laughs> that's right. I'm taking is it's bonerific. Um, the, 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 the the neuroscientist that's, that's the, right. The word the neuroscience and the psychological science. We talk about how bonerific things are for sure. Um, Thank you. You know the thing that you're alluding to there, Tim, is. Um, we typically, when we're unwilling to take risk, it's not that we aren't stepping into the arena, but then we don't take the risk to possibly fail. It keeps us from figuring out if we can succeed in those areas. And one thing we know for sure in the long run is that comes at a real cost to our level of fulfillment. If you're playing golf or doing comedy and you never take the risk to actually execute freely and see what comes at the end of that, the, the actual engagement with the activity becomes far less fulfilling and that's kind of your formula for burnout if every time you stepped into a place that required you to take a risk and you step back instead of stepping through uh it's very difficult to enjoy anything that you're doing and there's always a bit of a layer of regret to it which you're going to see a lot you know often in golf our default response to "Uh oh this is a tough tee shot is to try to steer something out there rather than to swing freely and Perhaps it goes into a place we don't want. Not that that's not costly, but imagine if every time you literally or figuratively stepped up on stage, you held back. There's a certain level of regret and dissatisfaction and kind of cost that comes to us. And people who live really fulfilling lives, it's not that they're not taking risk. They are. 
Um, and there's a, many types of risk. There's physical risk, social risk, financial risk, competitive risk, and all these. And when it's not up for me to tell my clients what level of risk they should take, but many of them are not taking the risk they know are necessary to produce success in the areas that they're competing in. Well, what's interesting is that, that we have we have choice in this. We do. We can either run towards it or run away. And you you know I think about. You, you think about the uh, golfer, uh, let's say on the PGA or LPGA tour, um, who is in contention, and they can actually make a, cho- a conscious choice whether they want to contend and possibly miss a two and a half foot putt on the 18th hole to lose and look foolish, or just to kind of get in a top 10 finish and make it okay. And that's not very fulfilling. But the only connection I'll make to that in terms of one performance, I did improv for two years. And one of the things I learned was I could sit back there and just sit on my hands. Or when the instructor said a game, I could put my hand up and just run. And what i getting to is that I had to have the courage to run towards the fire mm-hmm. rather than run away. But that takes no skill to, well, and, and to, if I may comment to navigate what, through it. Dr. Ray, let me just jump in for Tim. Like, I'll tell you what, what's something you said, both of you said. If you're not willing to risk the failure of something, then you can never really, I think what you're saying is if you can't risk the failure or failing at something, then how will you ever taste success? Because like I said to Tim after the performance, I did 13 minutes. Now, the, the, the joke, the irony is stand up in front of a thousand people is way easier in, than in front of 50 people because there's a self-consciousness to 50 people. A thousand people, there's an infectiousness. But not everything I said landed. And in fact, I don't know if I told you this, at one point, about halfway through after I'd, I'd, they, I had them, I, was, I paused for a second. I stared at the audience. And I said, OK. Let's all acknowledge that grandpa has forgotten what's coming up next. And they all laughed at that because I did. I blanked. But I had the present. I, I knew I, I knew I could say that and just acknowledge the, the reality of it. But I did. I blanked. I went, let's ign-. I said, I just paused for a second. I went back to my notes. I went, OK, grandpa's back. And they, they were fine with it. But I didn't know. Like, I, I was willing to acknowledge that there was a minor bump in the road. And what brings so I'm getting to a question. So one of the questions I said uh, to Ray that I wanted to talk about is a, is a great tie into this. What is it in the psychology and things we would learn from golf beneath the surface that stops golfers from reaching their potential? Well, it's a bit of a loaded question, but if I'm following the thread of our conversation here, our default response as human beings, and not just our psychology, but in our neurology and our nervous system, is when there are things that we don't want to happen, like the outcomes and experiences we don't like, our default response is to try to resist them. Right Now, in a survival-based setting 100,000 years ago, this was super helpful for us. None of us would be here if our ancestors didn't have that built-in default setting. However, when that becomes a habit or an ongoing cycle for us, what it keeps us doing is from stepping forward in those moments where the risk is something we actually do want to take, but now it's very difficult for us to be able to do so. And we're waiting on the situation to tell us that it's okay to go forward. So a really good working definition of stable confidence is self-given permission to perform freely without a guarantee, which means I have to be willing to risk failure to perform freely enough to give me the best chance for success. And what oftentimes keeps us from doing so is a variety of different things. One of them could be, I'm just unaware that this is my default response to it. So awareness plays a huge role. I might be unaware that 
how my brain is operating in these situations, which for the vast majority of my clients, when they learn a little bit about how their brain is operating, a lot makes sense for them. In which case then, as Tim alluded to, I have a little bit more autonomy of choice by being able to recognize, oh, here's my brain doing exactly what it's designed to do, but I don't have to. Another reason would be it's become such a habit that I have a hard time stepping away from it. And most of the time us going, you keep retreating instead of uh, proceeding in these types of situations, but it's become such a habit. We don't know how to get out of that habit because we just go, well, instead of that, do this. And that is one of the least effective ways for us to change our behaviors, whether it's a cognitive behavior, an emotional response or a physical behavior. And then the other part is for us that is most important is nobody can outperform their psychological framework. And that is our core beliefs about who we are, what the world is about and where we fit within it. And if you have core beliefs that are telling you everything from you're not capable of this or you better not screw up this risky situation because if you do and then fill in whatever blank that we tend to give to ourselves, oftentimes that's what keeps us from going forward because our, we're telling our brain through our own psychology, you need to save me from this, not help me move, navigate through it, right? So that's a long-winded psychological answer for saying we have core beliefs that create habits and if we are unaware of those and how our brain is working within them, that'll keep us from going forward in something even though what we really want to do is to do exactly that. And, and why? here's a quick question. Why is mindfulness slash meditation so important in helping to diffuse some of that because everything about us as human beings begins with awareness period end of sentence if you're hungry you know to eat because you become aware that you're hungry if there's danger around you you know how to react to it because you become aware of it in one way or another if you are thinking about the past or the future when you would prefer to be present the way we ab are able to counterbalance us is to be aware that we are. So without awareness, um, we are basically at the whip's end of what's happening within and around us. And so mindfulness is another way of saying awareness, but a very specific type that is built on one intention, meaning I'm going to pay attention on purpose. So it's proactive rather than reactive. So instead of me reacting to what I might be feeling or what I become aware of, I pay attention before I might need to pay attention to it, which gives me the upper hand to be able to, as Tim alluded to, make a choice about how I want to respond to it. It's also built on acceptance, which basically means instead of me fighting my thoughts and feelings, I learn to coexist with them in a way where I don't need to think or feel a certain way to be able to navigate a situation intentionally, which is a big change for most people when they learn mindfulness. So it's like, wait, I don't have to think positively all the time, or I don't have to try to make myself feel comfortable. No, you don't. We don't need to be positive or comfortable to be able to move toward the things that we want to. And then the last part is, is it's a mindfulness. It's a mindful awareness is built on. Can I be present more often learning to tune into the present moment rather than being in the past or the future? And the reason that's really important for us is we are physically always in the present moment. And so we have the most choice, the most control. We have the most um, dopaminergic response to the things that we're doing when they are actually happening if our focus matches. So almost think about mindful awareness is there's a watch on one wrist that is telling me what the actual time is. And my mindful awareness is helping me sync if I had another watch that told me where my focus time frame was and getting those two things on the same page. 
And the research is abundantly clear that people who live more of their life being present are happier, healthier, and higher functioning human beings because they have the most control and the most decision about what they do and how they do it in their lives. But it's so damn hard. <laughs> it can be difficult. Yeah. It's so damn hard. I it, mean, we're just all of our lives. I mean, you know, I try to meditate every day and and it's just like it's just thought, boom, 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 come back, go, come mm-hmm. back all the time. It's so, so hard. But um, it's such a practical skill developing awareness that's why i think meditation is wonderful there's bonuses to uh lower your heart rate feel calmer that's all good stuff great for on on the first tee but i think the core skill is awareness what am i paying attention to so i look at it as something very practical but one of the things that i really enjoyed about your book uh was your reference to the habit loop so we had judson brewer on our program gosh yeah seven yeah almost seven and a half years ago for sure yeah and i think that that is such a practical tool can you give us your sense of why that is something that's really valuable for people and how that habit loop actually works and what we learn from it yeah so despite the fact that we as humans oftentimes think we are very intentional conscious rational thinking creatures we are not we are creatures of habit And the reason we're creatures of habit is because that is exactly how our brain is designed to learn things. So a habit loop on using the technical neurological terms are when a trigger happens, a trigger is a stimulus, a something in our environment, whether internal environment or external. I have a response to it. That's our behavior. Behaviors can be both internal or external. And then there's a reason or a reward for our nervous system or our brain for what it gets from it. So essentially, when this happens, I respond this way for this reason. And this learning pattern for us is how we learn to navigate things. And the reason we become creatures of habit is because the parts of our brain that runs our run our habits is the fastest, strongest part of our brain. So it's not working as hard to run the things that we need daily. And what that does is it opens up space for the slower, weaker, conscious thinking parts of our brain to go learn new things. Okay. So without this process, we would be exhausted psychologically very quickly. Imagine if every day you woke up, you had to learn how to conscious and consciously think through tying your shoes, putting your clothes on, gripping the golf club, and you had to consciously think through all of that all the time. You'd be exhausted in no time. We, we wouldn't have enough energy to go expand our horizons, literally and figuratively. Well, how this works is if we do something, trigger behavior and ward enough, our brain moves it to a part of our brain that just runs it on automatic, assuming it's getting what it thinks it's getting. So, for example, anxiety is a habit for many people where they go trigger, score counts, or I'm literally walking on stage. And so that would be the trigger. The behavior is the anxiety, which is I'm going to worry about what's going to happen. I'm going to assume worst case scenario, or I'm going to try to save myself from the outcomes that I don't want. How do I do this? And the reward for that type of habit, what our brain thinks it's getting, again, remember its default settings are to move us away from things that we don't want, is it thinks it's doing something, for those listening, I'm putting doing something in quotes, to be better, avoid mistakes, motivate yourself. The downside with this habit is, It's not very helpful in situations where we're trying to thrive because we know for sure anxiety causes us to multitask with avoidance. 
And if you multitask with avoidance, you're doing two things that are moving in the opposite direction. One of them, your brain is designed to. Pay. And just quickly for clarification, because, uh, you know, in the book we talk, you talk, we, like I wrote it. In the book we co-wrote together, um, yep. <laughs> you talk a lot about, though, the difference that anxiety, because someone listening go, well, what about being nervous? Anxiety and nerves are different. And maybe we don't have time to explain that, but. The, they, they are different. You can be nervous and still perform. I was highly nervous walking out in front of those people. The same way I am in a tournament, but you can still execute while being nervous, but anxiety is different. Anxiety is different. Yeah, just did a very quick breakdown between the two. Um, nerves are a physiological response to when outcomes matter to us when we are doing the thing that is most important to us. So it is our nervous system, particularly our sympathetic nervous system, mobilizing us to either fight, flight, or freeze. So it's trying to make us more active. But the urgency for nerves is for now, not for later. Anxiety, by definition, is a psychological state defined by worry about the future, meaning it's a future-based psychological state, not a present-based physiological response. When you are nervous, we are better athletes by far, right? Players tell me all the time, I hit the ball way farther. And oftentimes my timing is even better when I'm nervous, provided it doesn't become anxiety. And the way nerves become anxiety is we go, oh, this is uncomfortable. I shouldn't be feeling this. I can't be feeling this. Or this is a precursor to me eating it when I go out on stage <laughs> exactly. rather, than, rather than seeing it as an indicator of I'm about to step forward into something that is really important to me when the outcomes matter to me. So it's helping you to mobilize, to take risk. Anxiety, on the other hand, is your brain trying to get you to step back away from that risk and again in a survival-based situation super helpful when we're trying to thrive and the best pathway through is to step forward it's what keeps us from moving back and, and part of the uh, adventure of the book that we wrote together um is learning what to do to decode you know trigger behavior reward and, and there are some great exercises that you know i benefited from it and i think you would too if you're listening um, because it's one of those books where the first part is you learn about what Ray's talking about, how our brains work. And then there's a bit of a light bulb moment, I think, for a lot of people. You go, oh, that's why I act the way I do. Now, what can we do about it? And that's where parts two and three come in. And um, I mean, I've talked a lot about it on the on the show, but that there is a way to decode and, and sort of deconstruct that habit loop, as Tim said, that you get into. Right. There's basically, if you're referring to uh, your, our, our, all of our spirit animal, Judd Brewer, yeah. his research shows that the most efficient way for stepping out of habit loops is a three-stage process. The first is just becoming consciously and consciously and overly consciously aware of the habit loop itself, which on a neurological what it do- level, what it does is because we are proactively paying attention to it, so we might say we bring mindful awareness to the habit itself, That conscious awareness pulls the habit from what we call set it and forget it mode, which is the automatic processing in our brain into conscious awareness. So essentially, a habit's going to run in habit mode, assuming it's getting the same thing and run automatically until we bring it enough awareness to it that we start to see it playing out in real time or perhaps even before we do it. So stage one is just becoming abundantly aware of the habit. Stage two is now can I pay attention to cause and effect? Mean, and what that means is, can I bring awareness to the languages that the parts of my brain running the habit actually speak? They do not speak rational, con- 
conscious creative, like talk my way through a habit. They speak in two languages, feelings and consequences. That's it. And the analogy I use with players is imagine I offered you a golf ball that when you played it, it felt terrible. It felt like you were hitting a rock. It would ring through your hands every time you struck it. It had no spin on it. Can't stay in the air. You never know how far it's going to go. And kind of like the a ultimate, range ball. Kind of like a range ball. Like imagine you were playing a range ball. And when you do that, also one of the more prominent consequences is it makes it harder for you to play freely. It makes it harder for you to score well. That's one option. The other option is you have a golf ball that feels great when you hit it off the middle of the face. It gives you really nice feedback for telling you kind of what your strike was like. It spins the way you want it to. It hangs in the air as long as you need it to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way to it helps you when you execute your skills freely. You're more likely to get the outcomes you want, including a better score. Choosing between these two, not a difficult choice. And the reason it's not is because you paid attention to what it feels like and what you're actually getting from it. So you have direct evidence in the language that our brain speaks most, which is feelings and consequences. So stage two of stepping out of a habit is, can I pay attention to what it feels like in this habit and what I'm actually getting from it? Sorry, go ahead, Tim. Oh, there was just some garble there. So no, because we're having we're having a little uh, Zoom, uh, you know, interruption there. Zoom is interruptions. Uh, exactly. So, but you're unfrozen now. Go ahead, Timmy. So, what I was going to ask was um, kind of a follow up. So, I lead a, a group. Um, those who are fans of Ted Lasso would get this. It's called Golf Is Life, <laughs> based on Danny. Yeah. And um, so, part of what we were talking about last night was how do you deal with nerves in, in tournaments and other parts of your life? And I related Howard's um, anecdote, if you will, about going on stage recently. And, and one of the things that he said was that he found a quiet moment. He, he closed his eyes. He grounded himself, got quiet. But one of the things he said to himself that he, he related to me was, this is not about you. And I related that to our group last night. And one of the friends says, Oh, that's a con. He goes, he goes, you're just trying to, to make your nerves go away. I said, no, I said, that's not, I think what it's about. I said, it does in Howard's, were okay timmy's is breaking up there again i call it a foundational kind of conviction right that no matter that that it's a foundational conviction that no matter what happens i'm gonna be okay bomb or excel i'm gonna be who i truly am and i'm going to survive how do you think that type of i call it a foundational conviction whatever you like how does that help us in the performance realm well, what you're talking about is you're um, getting into your psychological framework there about the meaning you are giving to events, right? Um, what meaning we give to events determines how much our brain is going to prioritize per- pursuit or avoidance. If I go into a situation and I'm telling myself it's life and death, the parts of my brain that don't know the difference between real and perceived are going to perceive that as life and death. And in life and death situations, the bottom line is, unless you have gone through some really rigorous psychological training that either comes with high performance consulting or military training, you are very likely to default to survival settings, which is avoidance based. Because that's, again, that's how our brain is designed to operate, right? So if I am telling myself something is life and death, and this would be kind of the uh, similar vein where we have paired our identity to our performance, the bottom line is, Um, unfavorable outcomes are not safe, at least not perceived as safe, in which case then you are going to perform in a way that is far more likely to be driven by anxiety and frustration 
then freedom and groundedness. And then ultimately what's going to happen is the experience is going to get worse and you're probably going to perform worse relative to your current skill level. And if you do that repeatedly, essentially what you're doing is you're creating a habit loop of trigger, performance, behavior, meet it with a do or die type of attitude or identity at stake. The reward for that is we're trying to, if something's super, super important, that will motivate me to do better. But if I ask you, how does it actually feel to perform when something is life and death and your identity is at stake? Doesn't feel good at all. You know, on a neurochemical level, it's all adrenaline. There's no dopamine. So nerves is not just adrenaline. It's adrenaline plus dopamine. Just adrenaline for us feels awful. It feels terrible. If I just pumped you full of adrenaline, you would feel like you're going to explode. Then asking yourself, well, what do you actually get from it? And the bottom line is anybody who has paired their identity to their Mm -hmm. performance or created a life and death situation for it. And again, this is not downplaying how important the outcomes are. They are indeed important. Many people are indeed playing for their livelihood in terms of their bank accounts and status and so on and so forth, especially this time of year. But when it becomes this is who I am and this is whether I'm going to be alive or dead, the consequences are when outcomes become meaningful enough and things count enough. It's just a matter of what are the actual margins for error and consequences. When they get steep enough, your brain defaults to survival and anxiety runs the situation and it becomes a really difficult means to try to play and perform well when the situation does indeed require um, well-executed performance. And, and when I well, say that to my... I'll go ahead. We, we both want to go. Yeah, because I have a hand so enjoying it. Yeah. I was just going to say, that's why... You see every year in a club C, you see most of the guys and women shoot about 10 to 15 shots above their normal cap. Of course. Because it means so much to them. Howard. What what I I was going to say, what I mean, by the way, and I'm from a golf standpoint, not just a performance standpoint. And I kind of got this. It was sort of based in O'Connor, a conversation we had years ago where I was making the round so much about me. And my identity and me mm-hmm. personally and how was what was my score going to be? And and one of the pieces of, of advice Tim gave me and it's it's it stood me in good stead all these years later is not every round is about you, meaning that like I'm going to play men's night tonight. And and then I've, I've been sharing with Ray over the last couple months, like I've had a better time playing golf this summer, even on days where the score doesn't match. You know, where formerly I would be pissed off because I've made the I've made the experience not about me personally, but about the experience in general. So, as you said to me, Ray, the margins for, you know, the the fairways aren't as narrow because if I miss the fairway, I'll be fine. I'll still be talking to my buddy Mike today and throwing shit back and forth. Whereas before I never I never thought that that was an important part of the experience. But when you make that the important part, all the other stuff just kind of follows along or it doesn't. Yeah, It's um, one of the primary symptoms of us creating a bit of a do or die situation or a identity paired with performance things is that we start to live and die by outcomes, not just of a round, but shot by shot. And then what that does is it will cut you off from the rest of the experience that gives it its full shape, not necessarily it, these one thing. So we start to think in very much in absolutes. This must happen in this way. And then when it doesn't, you become immensely preoccupied with it. And oftentimes you're dwelling and you're projecting rather than being present in the experience and getting the full shape of it. 
Now, for recreational golfers, this is obviously super beneficial because if you're going to pay money to play golf, you don't want it to be a miserable experience. But it also plays out in our performance. So even if you're a professional golfer, pairing your identity to your performance makes it more difficult for you to perform well. So not only is it cutting off the full shape of the experience, for example, something like playing in a Ryder Cup and everything that comes with it because you're so living and dying by outcomes, but also it starts to disrupt your ability to perform to execute freely, which will then negatively impact your outcomes. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Ryder Cup because obviously it's on a a lot of people's minds um, because of, you know, there there was the drama, obviously, but there's always the the performance, the excitement of it. And to kind of harken back to what we were talking about earlier is that when you make the choice to put yourself in an exciting environment, it's amazing what you can discover. And that's what I love about golf. Of all all the different things that we can do, I find that golf is a portal to revealing ourselves to ourselves and what we're truly capable of. And what I find is amazing in the Ryder Cup is that I I don't know what the, the data is, but I see more 30-footers for birdies going down. I see more chip-ins. I see more shots. Not by the, that, to be clear, not by the Americans, but by the other guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Sorry, I Ray. Gleefully... Yeah, Ray, I don't know where... Yeah, he probably... Yeah, never mind. (laughs) So that, to me, is the amazing thing about golf and other areas of performance. If we take the risk to be out there, it's amazing what we can actually do and show ourselves. So maybe speak to why, in those heightened environments, we see exceptional performance. Yeah, um, there are two primary reasons. The first is if you are willing to sit in the discomfort of the risk involved and be grounded because you're so nervous, you're more athletic. So you take a bunch of really skilled golfers, and if they're willing to be uncomfortable but also stay present, they're going to perform better. They're going to hit longer drives. They're going to spin wedges better. They're going to go for putts more often. Um, and the uh, So essentially, like when I'm in the highest stakes environments and I'm willing to perform freely, there's a bit of a cascade effect. There's like this ripple that goes around where you go, wow, I was super uncomfortable, but I played freely. That was awesome. And then that starts to compound over time and over the round. But it starts with, am I willing to step through this discomfort, not jump out of it, but step through it to play freely. And when they do that, as soon as I get a taste of, oh, I can be crazy uncomfortable with all of this risk involved and still perform freely provided I know how to access that. It's going to compound. And for most of those dudes, they have in one way or another figured out how to tap into that. If they haven't yet, you know, there's ways you can do that. And, and the second, can, part, of, the okay, second part of it is it's math play. So there's if you have an op, you like you're not going to win a lot of ho- like making bogeys and making a triple bogey is the same thing for most holes. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is if you have a 30 foot putt, they're usually reading it more aggressively trying to make it. Or if I have a chip from off the green, like whether I chip is like so there's a little bit of a situational acceptance right. of, well, bogey and double bogey are essentially the same. So I might as well rip at this thing. And if you give a bunch of very skilled golfers playing freely, those types of shots, they're going to make more of them than they would perhaps in a stroke play event where they do need to consider what's the cost of a double. And and conversely, I was going to say, it kind of explains the 30-year drought that the Americans have had on European soil because... Uh, it's the because of the opposite of what you've said. They're tighter. Um, they know the stakes are higher, et cetera, et cetera. Um, listen, my friend, um, the book is called Golf Beneath the Surface. That's how we all met. 
and um, it's the new science of golf uh, psychology. I've just—it's like thread. I've just gone through it. I've noted, and and now you can listen to Ray along with a, a very fine fellow named Chase Cooper, who is a high, high-level golf instructor and a really good guy. Their podcast is called, uh, strangely enough, "Golf Beneath the Surface." No. Uh, GBTS. And it's available on Spotify. I believe episode 10 just came out. True story. So the beautiful things, Chase and I co-host the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast, and you and I co-authored Golf Beneath the Surface. Exactly. (laughs) I find it very odd. It's very funny, Ray. I find it very odd that you haven't had me on. Some people are going to be like Googling. (laughs) I don't don't care. They're like, what? I didn't know Howard wrote that book. Um, It's weird that you haven't had me on. Uh, the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast, even though I'm your co-writer. I know, exactly. Well, you're on the list. We have quite a list of guests and prospective oh, guests yeah. that have contacted us. So you, we have uh, people have contacted me a couple times like, why haven't you had me on yet? I'm like, well, we're 10 episodes in and we have a list of 100 people yeah. who we want to be on the show and who want to be on the show. So like, we are working toward that. Dude, I'm getting calls from people saying, listen, you wrote the book with Ray. Why aren't you yeah. on the show? And I'm like, I don't listen. They've got other yeah. priorities. Uh, but in all seriousness, I would say that when I met you, um, when we met in May and then I started talking to you, uh, at the time, I was, this phrase always sticks out of my mind. The thing I loved... And the thing I loved became a source of my misery. And if nothing else from the book and our chats, I learned to separate self from craft enough so that the thing I love no longer makes me miserable. And a lot of golfers can relate to that because it's like you're spending all this money, you're doing all this thing, you're putting all this time in, and yet you're miserable. And there's a way out of that misery. And I can tell you from our notes, like you've seen it, like... I played some good golf, had some good results, but on even on days when the golf wasn't good, I've had a great time. And if nothing else, golf beneath the surface can give that to you if you're listening in a way that you may not have uh, thought of before. And so I would say thank you for that, my friend. Well, don't thank me. I can only uh, provide you the framework. You actually have to do that inner work yourself. You know, I have a couple of clients this week say, hey, thanks for getting me get my tour card. And my response to that is not trying to downplay my perhaps influence on people but the bottom line is there's only one person who can do the work that you did to open up the opportunity for you to have a different experience playing golf and that's you so uh, as much as i would love to take credit for it you are the humble howard so you're gonna have to humbly eat the credit for this one i'm gonna take credit for it but again kind of weird that i co-wrote a book with you and yet Nothing. Uh, golf, sure. golf beneath the surface. He still uh, has work to do. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's still working on that That's humility. Right. Golf is, beneath the surface. Uh, apparently written by Dr. Raymond Pryor uh, and ghost written by Dr. Howard Glassman. Uh, always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for doing this with us. See you guys. Thanks. There he is. Golf yeah. beneath the surface on uh, all the podcast platforms. Go and check it out. It's very interesting. And uh, the Rayman, the Rayman can chat, you know. I'm not, you can just let yourself out. We're going to talk about you now. Yeah. You can listen back later to see all the nice I'll things ex- we say. I'll, I'll exit stage right. Yeah, that's a boy. Thanks, my friend. All right. See you, Jen. Be well. Yeah. Bye. The, the thing about Ray's podcast, he's curious what I'm going to say. The thing about his podcast, and as we've heard him on this show, like he's a, he's a good chatter. And um, Oh, yeah. And he go, what I like about it is, especially for someone like me who's read the book and you've read the book, someone like us, I should say, um, 
he really brings it to life. Like a lot of, basically it's 10 episodes and a lot of what they do on the show is Ray just talks about how, like today, how you can learn to decode and um, deconstruct your own habitual behaviors. Yeah, exactly. But where does it start? Awareness. It always, yeah, yeah, obviously, um, you know, I resonate big time with that. Um, But I was listening to another podcast this morning and um, uh, Michael Singer, the author of, uh, I think it's um, The Untethered Soul. And and he was just saying that this whole thing of, of just being present to your experience of what's going around you, it's so simple and yet so hard. (laughs) <laughs> we just default as as dr ray was saying to to worry and you know which is fear and, and then maybe we go back to regret and rumination about about what could go wrong that could, and wow but always to to come back to just okay what is happening right now what am i paying attention to if we could kind of go to that spot just Again, I, I quote you all the time. It lowers the temperature. Yeah, yeah. It brings us brings to a the place where we, can, down, yeah. we know where we're at, and then then it's easier to to navigate our way through, whether it's golf or some messy situation. Well, you were talking about meditation, and it's it's, it's strange. Um, Fred and I had a conversation because we're recording this on Wednesday, October 11th. So I would have just finished the Humble and Fred show, and we we're talking about um, yesterday being Mental World Mental Health Day. And today on our show, we had Kevin Frankish, who used to be the host of Breakfast Television for years and is now hosting a mental health podcast. And he talked about his struggles with and coping with mental illness. And one of the things we brought up in the show is, what is meditation? Most people have no idea. Uh, if they've never experienced it, they think it's some, as you would say, some woo-woo thing. And But as I explained to Fred, all meditation is, is sitting Having these thoughts racing away and all this stuff like a ticker tape across your brain, noticing it, and then bringing it back to the present moment. And because it's because in order to break this habit of, of not doing that, all, all it's done for me over the couple of years of doing it is when I'm in those moments where I'm, I realize I'm not where my body is, I go, oh, I recognize, and I just recognize it a little bit faster. Because of the practice of meditation. And that's all it is. It's practicing what it feels like to notice when you're not in the present. Yeah, and that's why I always say it it, it builds your skill. Yes. It builds your skill of awareness. And to me, it's a, a, when I was doing um, some webinars about mindfulness and golf, I talked about, boy, if you're standing in your kitchen and your partner's talking to you and you're thinking about the email you didn't send, that's way more dangerous than if you miss a three-foot putt. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> so right. it's really practical to know, like, oh, um, my partner's talking to me, but I'm thinking about something else. Boom, come back. That's really all it is. Yep. Um, but, you know, one of the things that so many people – don't as you were saying they don't understand about meditation it's not about clearing my mind it's not about being able to just hold my attention for 30 minutes cross-legged or anything like that it's as you said it's like what's going on in my what's going on in my mind oh this and then you can make a choice does this serve me to be thinking about this or 
do I need to put my attention somewhere else? You and I have had this discussion. I'm not sure if we've done it on the show about guided meditation versus, you know, just, you know, free range. And I do both. You know, I, I often, um, and it's funny because when I do guided meditations on the waking up app, it's usually about 10 minutes. It's about as much as I can, I can deal with, but I do, I'll do longer meditations by myself. You know, like up to 15 or 20 minutes. But that's, again, that's kind of my limit. But the problem, not the problem, the thing I like about guided meditations is they guide you back to the present moment. And because sometimes I'll find my mind wandering and then Sam will sort of say, okay, if you are, if your mind is wandering, I'm like, how does he know? (laughs) Because he knows because your mind is always wandering. How it applies to golf, you know, and... In, in in so many ways where, you know, you, we all, all golf is a series of shots that, for the most part, aren't quite what you would hope they would be. It really exactly. is what, you know, they're mostly that. You know, I, I counted up the other day, just put a pin in this meditation thing. I counted up the other day, I had a decent round, I shot 75. And I nice. thought, how many actual excellent shots, like really, really like high level, came off exactly like I planned it in a round of golf? What would you think that number would be? Oh, I'd say two or three. Yeah, maybe. six. I had, a, I had six shots, and I was like, wow, that was exactly like I wanted to hit that. The rest were just a series of kind of okay, and there were three terrible shots, like uh, a three-putt that I didn't need to, you know what I mean? Like, just terrible. But really, most of it was just, well, it isn't, wasn't quite what I had planned, but uh, I'm somewhere near the green. So it's the presence of, uh, back to meditation, so it's the presence of being in the moment, knowing, like, that's what golf is. You know, I don't. I don't need to get pissed off at that six iron that just came up short because mostly they they all kind of do. Yeah, exactly. And it, so the the thing that's I think difficult for some people when we start to talk about these kinds of things is that okay, how do I bring this to my Saturday morning round yes. or men's night? And to me, it is super practical in that let's say I'm on the seventh hole and I've had a, some trouble getting my drives to land on the planet. You know, by the seventh hole and you've blasted yet another one, you know, into the farmer's field, it would be pretty natural to walk down the fairway going, God dang it, what the hell am I doing? What What's going on here? Um, am I letting my, you know, doing something physically wrong? And all that does is perpetuate, as Dr. Ray said, the anxiety. It's, it's worry. It's, it's putting a very tight spotlight on your performance. There's more tension. And so how does awareness help us? It's just walking along going, Oh, I'm doing that thing. I'm yeah. going down the rabbit hole. I'm going through my Rolodex, whatever. And if you've played enough golf and you've had enough experience, you know that that doesn't serve you. So just that awareness, oh, I'm in that place right now of searching, seeking, et cetera. What could I do? Eh, I'll have a conversation with my buddy. I'll look at the trees, listen to the birds, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that just, you know, to bring it to the Buddhists, um, that so doesn't relieve our suffering, but decreases it. Well, yeah, well, because awareness of it helps decrease it, helps to minimize it. You know, and as I've said uh a hundred times on the show, you know, the part of the stress. And I, I only, I learned this through my own struggling that everyone hopes somewhere in their subconscious that today will be the day that nothing goes wrong in golf. And, and I've said that enough times. I truly believe that 
an awareness that, like, I'm going to tee off in three hours from now. Playing men's night, we have a couple more to go. It's like 14 degrees here today. I have no, nothing, zero things invested in how I play today other than the guys I'm playing with, I have a laugh with them, and whatever score I shoot will have zero effect on me as a golfer. Whereas before, even in a a round where I could say, you know, give lip service to, it doesn't mean anything, secretly I I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted it to be perfect. But now I don't, not that I don't care, of course I want to hit good shots. But as I explained to you a moment, I acknowledge I'm only going to hit a few, whatever number, of great shots in a round. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes today. But the awareness of, it's that's what golf is for me now. Yeah, I want to, it would be great if I called you tomorrow and said, hey, dude, I shot whatever number, but I'm also going to be cool if I shoot, you know, whatever number, 86, 82, 83, well, 86, I lose my mind. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that's no. one of the things I love about fall golf is that uh, there's no more tournaments. Nope. You know, I, I'm playing less. Um, and I, a couple times in my few last couple of games, gone out. And I've just had the sense of I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, exactly. These are the guys I love playing with. I love being on Blue Springs. It's a beautiful day. I am a very fortunate person. Yep. And so I think fall golf kind of brings that because we're kind of saying goodbye. Yeah. And when the it's like that song when the days dwindle down to a precious few, then you can sort of look to the sky and be sort of not sort of you can be grateful for the fact that these are the final few days of the season. And how much meaning does it really have other than to try not? I mean, for me, it's just all about not being too cold. I'm cold, man. Ah, uh, there so you go. I thought you you started into that lyric, and I thought there's a rhyme there that you just didn't. I know. I didn't. I didn't. I'm sorry. Because um, I, I, I went away from the lyrics. Uh, O'ConnorGolf.ca. Get the Substack, and now his uh, newsletter, Humble and Fred Radio. Uh, look up that uh, podcast. Where by the time, by the time we do our next um, swing thoughts, Fred and I will have been uh, have have embarked on um, year thirteen of doing a podcast. That's wow. We're just a few days away from the end of our twelfth year, so. Uh, all kinds of stuff in this. Uh, well, congratulations. Thank you, sir. Corey, and uh, golf beneath to you. <laughs> golf beneath the surface. And uh, that's the uh, podcast and the book. And we will see you next time. Oh, yeah. As always, brought to you by TaylorMade Golf and OscarBravo.com. Check out Guitar George.